Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. For me, it was the first time I'd ever seen the dots being connected between the mechanisms of nature and the earth and human participation that was a clear pathway for how life could get better three or four generations forward. It was just like this light went off in my heart and mind in a way that is after you know almost 10 years since that moment present to the gift and that these kinds of moments don't happen all the time but it was so profound that it was like my life became aware of this thing that I couldn't become unaware of and that there was this opportunity to have a global adoption of this idea and understanding of regeneration which had just become fully bloomed and illuminated in my mind and heart and it was like Oh my God. And I could see and feel the possibility of this really happening in that moment, in that day, nine years ago. And I could see somehow how I'd play a role in helping to have that message be catalyzed and shared. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that features the backstories of folks who are out there taking leaps of faith in order to figure out ways to use their platform or their resources or their voice in a way that leaves the world a better place. My guest today is Ryland Englehart, who's been a friend of mine for many years, actually. In fact, those of you who have a copy of my latest book, Knowing Where to Look, if you remember a story called To the Mountaintop, that's where I described running these hill sprints each morning. And then one day I got some unsolicited advice from a man pushing a shopping cart down the hill. Well, Ryland happened to be with me that morning and he was sprinting the hill with me as we did together on several occasions because it was a part of our morning routine. So I met Ryland at a vegan cafe in Venice, California called Cafe Gratitude, which Ryland was running at the time. He was the chief inspiration officer. And through that position, he initiated some amazing community experiences, including a free Thanksgiving feast every year and a bunch of other wonderful experiences. And that's also where Ryland was when he discovered the power of soil regeneration. He didn't technically discover it, but he came across information about other people doing it. And that led him to co-founding a nonprofit called Kiss the Ground. And eventually, he left his position at Cafe Gratitude to head up Kiss the Ground full-time. So what is soil regeneration? Well, one of the biggest issues facing climate change, which a lot of people are talking about these days, it's not too much carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. It's depleted soil. So apparently, when soil is over-tilled and over-farmed, it stops taking the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is what it's supposed to do, 
and instead it just dries up and becomes nutrient poor, which makes it hard to grow anything on it. But when farmers actually stop tilling the soil and instead they start creating biodiverse growing environments on their land, which means planting multiple types of produce instead of just corn or just wheat, when they plant like nature plants, dozens of types of produce all in the same area, and they stop tilling the soil as well, the soil will quickly start to regain its health by sequestering the carbon, which means pulling the carbon from the atmosphere and using that carbon to enhance the soil health by feeding the microorganisms in the soil. And as a result, the produce that gets grown in that healthier soil is more nutrient and mineral rich. Pretty cool, huh? So it's an all-around beneficial thing to do. And what Kiss the Ground does is they educate farmers and regular folks about how to create healthier soil at their farm or in their vegetable garden. They talk about how to compost. And if we can get more people learning how to take care of their soil, then we can reverse climate change because environments with nutrient-poor soil tend to be hotter during the day and colder at night, creating a desert type of atmosphere. So apparently it all comes down to the soil. As I said, Kiss the Ground didn't discover this, but when Ryland learned about it, he recognized that his mission was to help popularize this knowledge. And he and his team created a wonderful documentary about it that's currently streaming on Netflix called Kiss the Ground. I saw it. It's so inspiring. And if I wasn't currently nomading and if I had a home somewhere with a yard or a garden, I would definitely watch the documentary and I would be composting and regenerating my soil. So we're going to go into Ryland's backstory and how he got to where he is. As with pretty much everyone I've interviewed, he never saw this calling of his or this passion coming until he had a bunch of seemingly unrelated life experiences. And then, as it turned out, he was the perfect person with the perfect set of life experiences to take on this mission. And that's why I interview the people I do in the way that I do, starting from childhood, because I think it's important to show over and over and over how these seemingly random experiences end up tying together in the end. And it's not just them. It's happening for you, too. Whatever you are going through right now is going to play a key role, not just a regular role, a key role in your calling, in your mission, in your purpose. So thanks very much for listening and sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with my dear friend, Mr. Ryland Inglehart. Ryland, such an honor, man, to have you on the podcast. You and I have known each other for, I was thinking about when we first met. I think it was through Justin Schmidt. I think he introduced us because he started working at Gratitude when it first opened in Venice. And maybe John Morrow. I think I may have known him before. Justin, Justin Schmidt started working when we were at Larchmont. For, uh, oh, right. That was the first one. Yeah, that's right. Larchmont. Because I yeah. met Justin at your parents' farm in Hawaii, in Kipahulu. I met Justin and John there. And then that was in 2007. When did Larchmont open Cafe Gratitude? It opened March 4th of 2011. Yeah, that's right. Because then I remember 
I came in with Preston and Mustafa and a few other guys. And I think that may have been the night that we all yeah. kind of met that first yeah. time. I actually remember that night. I remember I was yeah. like, who are these cool ass, tall, beautiful <laughs> black men coming into the cafe with a, a squad with a, with a very unique uh, cool, vibe. I was like, I want to be their friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's good to have you on the show, man. And yeah. talk about your story. So let's take it back to Little Ryland. Where did you grow up again? Ithaca, New York, or outside of Ithaca, New York. Upstate New York on the Finger Lakes. My dad and his brother married my mom and her twin sister. Brothers married sisters. And they bought 17 acres and an old farmhouse, I think for $40,000 in 1982. And so that was kind of pretty much where... I grew up from two to 18 was in the same house sort of in the country outside of Ithaca, New York. Where did they come from? Did they grow up in that area? My dad grew up in Plattsburgh, New York, which is right across the border from Burlington, Vermont. His two parents were university professors at the university in Plattsburgh. He didn't go to college. He was like a back to the lander. He lived a couple of years off the grid exploring, wintering in a teepee with friends. That's where you were conceived, apparently. Actually, no, it's funny. I I just was, uh, we're we're setting up an event in Laguna Beach, and I was telling my dad about that, and he was like, you were conceived. The story is always a little shifty, but but he said, I was conceived in a VW van parked on the street in Laguna Beach. This actually connects to you, interestingly enough. They came out to California. My sister was born. She's two years older than me. And so they drove with her out to go find this teacher, Charlie Lutz, who was a... The TMer, right? Yeah, the TMer. He was was a Maharishi devotee and kind of spread the message, teaching the teachings. So they came out to to study under him and Mm -hmm. got pregnant in Laguna. That's where he was located. And then, you know, they were like, oh, we got two kids coming. We got to get serious about life. And so they <laughs> drove back to New York and started setting up a family, which was ended up where we ended up in Ithaca, New York, in an old dairy farm. And that was where things began. Was that like a one-off bargain, the 17 acres? Or was that just what was happening in that area around that time in the early 80s, where they had to pick yeah. up the pick of the litter? People weren't able to make a good living off of farming. And so selling farmland was pretty cheap. And so we had 17 acres, we had a little pond and planted an apple orchard and big vegetable garden and a big hay barn that, yeah, we got to run around pretty freed up, naked and free. When you think back to those times when you were running around your 17 acres and outside and all that, did you have a favorite toy or activity that you were sort of obsessed with that you remember? For instance, mine was like Star Wars. I did not grow up on a farm, but we were always out in the backyard playing with lightsabers and stuff. What was your version of that? Yeah, we didn't have plastic toys. You know, my parents were pretty serious about, you know, for birthday parties we couldn't have guns we have squirting fish versus squirt guns <laughs> did you but, know any different or were you just like okay what's fine or were you like oh man i really want a plastic squirt gun 
Yeah. So no, I definitely knew about them. But again, we had wooden toys. So I, I would say, you know, again, it's not that much different. I, I had like a, a, a wooden sword and shield that I was pretty fond of and could live in the fantasy land of fighting dragons or such out in the, in the fields beyond our house. But yeah, I mean, as far as toys go, I don't have that much memory of toys. Mostly, you know, my childhood memories were like building forts in the hay bales and fishing. So just being outdoors and just exploring and all of that. Yeah, I've always said that there's almost nothing more joyful than running through the woods with a stick in my hand, just like fully embodied in, you know, again, it feels like a a perennial thing to be, you know, running through the woods with a stick in my hand. But yeah, definitely love the exploration and the being in nature. Were your siblings like your playmates or were there other farmer friends or you kind of on your own mostly? My sister was two years older. So, you know, we, I had her and then my parents were definitely always like an open door policy. I've seen this in myself that I'm in life. I find myself always taking on people, like helping people along the way. And sometimes that's been great. Sometimes (laughs) it's been difficult, but every summer there'd be people staying with us, family, friends, someone's house burns down, someone's kids having, you know, an emotional tough time. And so we always had family friends with kids around. And then there was definitely kids, my sister's best friend and my best friend, Kayuma and Shahid, they lived probably two miles down where you could take a bike. And so they lived pretty close. And then, yeah, there was some other neighborhood kids that we, we would play with and connect with, but also a lot of time solo by myself as well. What do you remember getting from that experience or learning about yourself during that time from being outdoors, fishing and making forts in the hay and all of that? Like what connections were you making about life at that time, even if they were like childlike connections? Yeah, there's this memory that always seems to come back, which was just sitting on the dock by the pond outside, you know, like a half mile behind our house. and having my feet touching the water and being able to kind of bring the water up out of the pond and watching it drip down and watching the sun kind of reflect off it. And yeah, the experience was just one of awe, wonder, appreciation, really peacefulness and a sense of finding enjoyment and fulfillment through this observation and connection and touching and feeling the water, moving the water, noticing how the water interacts with the sun and then how that interacts with me and just feeling deeply connected and in appreciation. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. 
So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Do you remember any sayings or philosophies that your parents would echo around the house while you were you and your siblings were growing up that still kind of stick out today since you guys had such a what most people would consider an unconventional childhood? Yeah, I mean, definitely we weren't religious in that there wasn't one specific god or book that we as a family looked at, but there was definitely this very communicated idea that we're all one, that life is all connected, that God is the totality of life. And their spiritual teacher, this woman named Jan Kinney, really taught this philosophy of that your life is a picture of your mind who you're being in life is a reflection of your thoughts, speech, beliefs, actions, and attitudes. And we have an opportunity to be connected to the divine by being through our thoughts, speech, beliefs, actions, and attitudes, qualities of love, kindness, compassion, joy, gratitude, abundance, creativity. And so this was part of our early framing and upbringing and and philosophy and even the ideas. I remember my mom was always, and this is so relevant for me in my life right now even, but she was always saying, you know, language is so powerful. Our words create worlds. And if we are able to expand the subtlety, nuance, and distinction of our words, we can live in that abundance versus you know, a good, bad world. So there was definitely a emphasis on expanding the articulations of ways of being as that would give us a broader rainbow experience of life because in articulating an experience has us have that experience of life versus mm-hmm. just, you know, things being sort of good, bad, right, wrong. If we could speak to the rainbow of language, we could experience the rainbow of life. I know you went to Waldorf school when you were a kid, but you had at some point were diagnosed 
with, I think, ADHD or you had some kind of reading disability or learning something or another. How did all that play into your primary education years? Was that frustrating for you or did you feel like something was wrong with you or, or something was wrong with the traditional school or how did all that work for you? Yeah, I would say that definitely to this day, it's still probably the biggest cross I carry as far as just feeling inadequate in the world and feeling ill-prepared on some intellectual level or academic level. But definitely, you know, the going from Waldorf school where there wasn't a big emphasis on core reading, writing, math, spelling, to then going to public school and basically finding myself way behind where it's kind of like you show up and everyone's speaking a language and everybody has a level of understanding. And it's kind of like you went to a world where they're speaking another language. That definitely was pretty difficult for me going from the transition of you know, Waldorf school into public school at eighth grade and basically finding myself in the resource room with students who were learning disabled, Down syndrome, ESL, English as a second language, and essentially needing that support to kind of make it through high school. And definitely a very strong story and sort of imprint of I don't have what most other people have. I don't have the basic knowledge that most people have. And so obviously that led to, you could say compensation, or you could say innovation as far as how to survive when you don't feel like you have the the tools. And again, I think the always the thing that I come back to is that it really had me explore my human connection and my emotional intelligence and my ability to create relationships with people. It wasn't even that I was assigned to the resource room. I literally just made relationships with June Pollock, who was the resource room teacher and kind of just basically self-guided myself as an eighth grade student to like, I'm going to use the resource room, not because I was assigned, but just I needed to figure out something. And so creating relationships with adults where I could emotionally connect with them and ultimately find the support I needed to be able to succeed in those years of school. Was there any teasing associated with that or not really? I definitely experienced, you know, some tea, of course, just like everybody experienced that. But again, there definitely was teasing. And I think at a very early on, it was even pre this point, but some ability to even like I remember Julian Tabor was you know the bully of um, <laughs> our childhood, and right. I was able to at a very quick and decisive way be able to convince him that I somehow had the the knowledge and skills to kind of direct his aggression such that it wasn't at me and that I could kind of be telling him what to do versus him bullying me around. So there was some way to kind of divert affliction towards me and create some leadership quality or some quality that had him trust me or or follow my direction versus me being afraid of him or being, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether it was like 
being cool or being funny or there was there was a way to avoid being the target of being bullied, even though there was a clear feeling of like I, I I'm maybe ill prepared. But yeah, that was one memory of recognizing my ability to kind of get people's trust. I think that's it really is the ability to get people's trust. If you could remember or reflect back to that age, do you remember any specific tactic that you used to get his trust or anyone's trust for that matter, or to divert the attention away from whatever inadequate perceived inadequacies you, you may have had? I think it was more like energetic and being wild and kind of loud and being sort of like off the cuff. Like you didn't know what was coming from me. Like I, I was unpredictable in my movement, in my language, in what I, what I knew or understood. After high school, you decided you had an upper school. <laughs> what was the plan? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of plays right into, you know, I graduated high school. I didn't get into team sports. I had kind of a, a bad experience with that where I had a coach kind of make me cry and turn me off to team sports. So that kind of sent me in the direction of solo sports, skateboarding, snowboarding. And I got pretty good at that. And yeah, after high school, I basically enrolled my parents and enrolled one of my good friends, Connor, to basically, yeah, move to the West Coast by ourselves. No other family was out there. And there was a, a quote that someone said, Rylan, you're very confident to move in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there is a trust and a gregariousness that life's going to work out and a confidence to just go for something with no evidence that it's doable, reasonable, or possible. I imagine you you inherited a little bit of that through your parents because they seem like, I don't know a lot about their story, but they seem like they're a bit gypsy. They have a gypsy quality to them. Is that accurate or no? Or were they more like prudent? No, definitely not prudent. <laughs> definitely not. I mean, I don't know if I'd go all the way gypsy, but definitely not prudent. I mean, they, they threw their cards to the wind many times. Mm -hmm. I saw them kind of risk it all and go for big ideas without the proper skills. That's probably the, the, the thing is not having the skills and still willing to step forward and try something or declare something as possible and taking actions towards it and being good at enrolling others in that, their vision. So this was your first major leap of faith going to the West Coast to when you, in your mind, were you going to become a pro snowboarder and that's how you're going to make your living or what was your idea for what you wanted to be in life? I wasn't thinking about it long term. I think it was just that what I was most passionate about, what I loved was snowboarding and I was pretty good at it and I had competed a little bit in the small world of small mountains on the East Coast, Greek Peak, Labrador Mountain, you know, 900 vertical feet ski resorts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was this dream of, you know, the big West Coast, the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, and the Sierras and Lake Tahoe. And so, 
we made a trip all the way down the East Coast visiting friends that kind of had moved away and were going to college and then drove across the South and then went up into Utah and had friends there that we thought maybe we'd live in Utah. But there was definitely this California dreaming that was calling us. And again, just to give you a little bit of the level of faith, like we didn't know where we were going. Like literally mm-hmm. 18, maybe, I don't know, 300 or 500 bucks in the bank, pre-cell phones, a little Toyota stick shift car that I had just got that year and basically just left home and didn't know where we were going. We could have stayed in Utah. We could have stayed, but I definitely had this ability. And, you know, it's, it's obviously funny at 41. I definitely can see that I've, I've curbed that a little bit, (laughs) my, my faithfulness in, you know, it'll all work out, but it has been a, a great journey and a great guiding principle. And just going back to childhood, there was these cherry tree hedgerow that was on our property that had wild cherries. And I would climb up to the top of the cherry trees and pick the cherry trees. And there's a very explicit memory of being in the skinny branches on that tree saying, can my body be held by these branches? And always mm-hmm. being very kind of trusting in that I was going to be held. And I have fallen out of a couple of trees before, but there was always that trust in being held. That was, would carry on to my, you know, journey to the West Coast, which ended up having me calling a woman and her her son who I had met at a snowboard competition a couple of years before, and asking if we could stay with them. And we ended up, me and Connor ended up, you know, staying in a bedroom in their house. But literally, we drove all the way to Reno, Nevada, and then called them and said, "Hey, we're coming into town tomorrow. <laughs> Can we stay?" And you know, they said yes, and we ended up staying a year. Who was the better snowboarder, you or Connor? I was a little better. I mean, I I had more years of it than him. And I was a little bit more fearless and willing to just throw myself off of a, a cliff or a big kicker, as we called them. Were you at a level where it could have become something like you could have been sponsored or anything like that? Or would it have taken a lot more to get to that level? Yeah, no, I was I was right on the level of sponsorship. I remember Neil Goss from Sims gave me a free Sims snowboard as, you know, a potential sponsor. And even before I left Ithaca, I had gotten the snowboard shop in Ithaca had given me like a pro form deal on a snowboard to be sponsored. And so it never went all the way, but I definitely was, you know, was riding with kids and young people who were, who became pro and were pro. I mean, I grew up snowboarding a lot with Jesse White, uh, Sean White's older brother. And Sean White became one of the biggest. I met him when he was nine years old and took his crust off his peanut butter jelly sandwich. So yeah, was good, but I got hurt, which definitely kind of took the wind a little bit out of my sails. Cause you know, I think in a lot of ways when you're snowboarding and you think you're invincible, you think you can do anything. And then I fell once and thought I broke my back. And that definitely took the invincible way of being a little bit out of how I operated. And then, you know, and then my life totally changed because my sister had a life crisis, which ended up taking me to Los Angeles and becoming, you know, working in the recording studio business, hip hop and R&B music business 
from kind of 20 to 23. Before we get to that part, I want to talk about your landmark course that I believe you took at 19, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also the plant ceremony, because both of those seem to be pivotal moments that shape the next sort of phase of, of your life. For those who don't know, Landmark is a personal development course, a transformational course. It's a weekend long situation. You go in there and you, what was your experience like in Landmark at night? Because the thing is, I've known people who've taken those courses in their late 20s, early 30s, 40s, but I can't imagine what sort of impact it would have at 19 when you still don't have a whole lot of real world experience. I mean, you'd only worked as the kitchen manager, I believe. That was your only real conventional job. (laughs) So what was that like doing Landmark? It was very transformative. I did it in the World Trade Towers in New York City before they fell, uh, 14th floor in 2009. And it was really, I'd say the biggest exposure and was really just connecting through my learning disabilities and kind of going through school and feeling sort of ill-equipped and then having that be a kind of separation or barrier between me and a lot of people and my perception of what they knew and what I knew. Landmark really created a level playing field in that I really saw that everybody is afraid that they're behind, that they're not enough, and that you know, everybody's kind of pretending like they got it all together. No one has it all together. Everybody's in some closets of their mind are feeling a feeling of inadequacy and a feeling of not enoughness and an unwillingness to acknowledge that. And then to see hundreds of people acknowledging that simultaneously in all their different forms, you know, it's just like, oh, what a relief of seeing human beings show their true colors of, oh, wow, we're all the same. We're all, you know, sort of scared and insecure children with adult suits on acting like I got it together, propagating our professions and our jobs and our cars and our salaries and our degrees as the thing that we kind of lean on to give us security. What inspired you to do the course? Because it's not a cheap course. You're still a young person. What have you been doing in New York City? Like, how did that even happen? My friend Shahid, who I told you about, was one of my childhood friends who, you know, rest in peace. He's no longer with us. But he was a very smart and, you know, had a little bit of uh, cynical sense of humor and never was into kind of any spirituality, woo-woo kind of stuff even though his mom was pretty out there. and But I basically came home and me and my friend Liam, who was my other childhood best friend, were like wanting to find summertime. We wanted to find our friend Shahid. And we heard he was in New York City doing some transformational course. And we were mm-hmm. like, what? That seems crazy. So we ended up going to find him and we went up to New York City to find him and ended up at his like graduation or his Sunday night or Tuesday night completion of it. And basically walked into a big room with a very, very diverse population of people sitting in this kind of conference setting. You know, we're from Ithaca, you know, we're kind of from a small town in upstate New York and basically just seeing people have these testimonies and people acknowledging 
um, you know, how stuck they were and then seeing clearly the freedom in their being and their, in their voices and their faces, you know, it, it became a, a certain moment in the night where landmark, you know, the, the leader says to the guest, Hey, tell you, ask your friends why they should do this, or if you want them to do this. And a lot of people find it as an appalling salesy moment, which it, it, it can be, but if you if you haven't allowed the miracle of the room to impact you, then it just looks like, you know, something to kind of defend against. But yeah, I, I could just see Shahid had these big eyes and I could just see in his being, like he had been altered. He had been touched. He had been moved to see something that he hadn't seen before. And, you know, there was a softness and there was a vulnerability and an authenticity that wasn't his MO. And he said, I think you should do this. And we said, okay. And so I ended up taking a Greyhound bus down to New York City three months later or two months later to take this course by myself in New York City. And I ended up staying with one of our sort of not cousins, but cousins that we grew up with, who was a lawyer living in a sky rise in New York City. And yeah, the course was massively transformative in really seeing that through authenticity and being truthful about our flaws, we could find more freedom. And I think the natural tendency is to hide our flaws and pretend that we're together and we live constricted lives in that propagation and that pretending. Also, just thinking about like ideas of success, which I think a lot of younger people, you know, you inherit your idea of success from your community or your parents. And like, so for me, when I was that age, my dad had impressed upon me that success meant owning your own business, making lots of money and everything having to do with external material accumulation and achievements. How do you feel that that experience helped to shape your idea of what it meant to be a successful person in life in general? I think my whole life up until this point is I've been throwing my energy not from a self-success, but a how to make a difference, how to you know create mm. something that contributes, how to be, yeah, an expression of how to catalyze transformation. So it's been articulated in many different ways, but every step of the way has been geared towards cultivating and creating spaces and experiences of transformation for myself and for others and for the world at large. And I think that this experience was definitely foundational for that way of being. Like life is making a difference. Wherever you are, show up and make a difference versus mm -hmm. like office, business, make lots of money, secure house, car. My whole kind of view disposition was more driven by making a difference and then creating success through the commitment of making a difference and then modeling something that ultimately could generate you know, income or generate a business that grew and that worked. And how did the plant ceremony help to sort of give language to that mission? The plant ceremony was probably a year later. And what 
I was dealing with was I was living in San Francisco. I was working at a dot-com company as the maintenance guy. And there was all these young people that were making a lot of money in technology. And I was, you know, filling the pretzel bowl in the snack room and shopping at Costco for crystal geysers and, you know, filling the refrigerator and vacuuming the floor. And I was in some, again, mental crisis of like, I should be doing something more. I need to get involved in technology. And so I I went, my parents took me to a plant medicine ceremony with the Santa Daime Church in the Marin Headlands in a redwood grove. And basically we drank this medicine, the combination of two South American plants that creates a expanded state of consciousness where you experience a lot of physical sensations as well as, you know, mental and even, you know, with your eyes closed, you see a lot of visual worlds open. And that experience really, you know, there was a lot of scary moments and moments of total terror and fear and loss of control. But there was a moment of surrendering, which led to the sort of visual cacophony or carnival of visual experience that had me see sort of the answers to my questions, which were like, don't plug yourself into technology and get fascinated into that. There was this calling of Mother Earth, the spirit of Gaia, the, you know, the spirit of the plants, and this moment of seeing and feeling completely plugged into the earth and seeing visually seeing my fingers as root systems and my shoulder as the hillside and my 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 eyes being the eyes of the the red tail hawk that was observing what was happening you know on the ground in this redwood grove and kind of this you know full transcendental experience of feeling connected to all of life that was speaking to this philosophy that I grew up with, which was this idea of oneness, but only very glimpsy experiences of what that might feel like. And then having this experience where, oh, this is, this is, this is what all that talk was about. This is that experience that all the books and all the moments of talking about this moment of no longer the self-identity of Ryland, but this experience of full immersion and connectivity with the life of this earth and the utter humility and the utter gratitude for being alive and connected to the earth and even a more explicit like that this feeling this energy that I was connected to was having a very clear conversation of calling for my devotion and my care and my service and my commitment and my protection Mm -hmm. and that my life wasn't to go in the direction of technology. It was to go in the service of mother earth and Mm -hmm. nature. And so, you know, that was a a profound experience that I can still recall that feeling of total, fully embodied connection and devotion and 
aliveness of the earth and being one with that. No, that's what's so funny about life is that we can have these profound breakthroughs and epiphanies and revelations. And then the next day we get a call that our sister is facing life, life imprisonment for some drug related activity, or my mom is leaving my dad for another woman, or, you know, all these are things that you've actually, you have experienced. And it's almost like life wants you to sort of integrate that into the day to day you know, and see how that kind of shows up. So, so talk a little bit about what going to LA to be, I, I'm assuming you went for emotional support. I, I don't, unless you went for some other reason, how did that sort of help to, to bring all this together? I'm having a, 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 a funny, just serendipity um, moment, which is that um, Molly's um, drug deal went bad. Um, that led to, um, uh, you know, her crisis, which led to me going to LA. My sister had a life crisis where she was involved in a marijuana deal gone bad, where two people got shot. And she called me and told me that this had happened and that she might go to jail and she needed my help and our parents were getting a divorce. And so I basically just got up and left Lake Tahoe and kind of my snowboarding aspirations. And that totally was like a chapter change to then moving to LA and opening a commercial recording studio with my sister over the next three years from 2000 to 2003. So she obviously got out of all that legal trouble and she was able to do that. No problem. Yeah. I mean, it was not no problem. She did get out of any liability of it because she wasn't the person who was involved. Yeah. I mean, she she wasn't the person who who shot the gun, but she did get out of it. But it did lead to a whole other world of where we were afraid for our lives that the person who had gotten shot and the person Mm -hmm. was still alive, their families and relations were wanting revenge. And so that was actually a, a looming experiences, experiencing a fear that, you know, lived with us through the recording studio years. Yeah. Were you we were always looking over your shoulder then when you're like coming out of your car and going into the studio and things like that? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely moments where that there was indications and signals that that risk was alive and real. And so, yeah, there was definitely moments where that was our experience that we thought, you know, people were going to come around the corner shooting up the studio, which, I mean, it sounds crazy to say now, but that, that was, that was the experience and what we felt was the possible reality at that moment. Why studio and why hip hop and R and B and all of that? Like, what what was that all about? Did you have a, some dream to produce hip hop music? My, My sister was a button pusher at, early age she she dated you know like punk rock guys and then those guys weren't enough button pushing for my parents and then she did you know start dating all black guys to see if that would push my parents buttons so the culture of andy and zimbabwe which were two sort of older black guys that you know went to our high school that hung out with molly that molly dated yeah they were cool guys who i looked up to and admired and so that early sort of connection 
to them and their music and culture, you know, really inspired me, you know, inspired a, a love of hip hop to where my first concert was, you know, Wu-Tang Clan at 14 when ODB had just got shot. And yeah, I mean, Nas was, is still probably one of my favorite artists ever. I got to meet him a couple of times and yeah, hip hop music. I, I loved hip hop music and my sister also was quite in that culture, she became a slam poet and performed on Russell Simmons' Deaf Poetry Jam. And so it was kind of the, the cultural identification that we felt most connected to in our youth. And that then translated into her having an intern at Sony Music with a guy named Max Goose, who's an urban A&R guy there. And he had a studio and was you know catering to artists like Montel Jordan and other artists, B2K, Ashanti, Rough Riders. I think our first studio artist in the, in the studio was The Locks from Rough Riders. Or Jada Kid, no, Jada Kid. Jada Kiss. Jada, Jada, Jada yeah. Kiss from The, from the Locks. Locks. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was definitely deeply steeped for many years in hip-hop culture. I joked that I used to have a, a thin kind of Puerto Rican chin strap <laughs> and used to rock the FUBU jumpsuits and the velour Sean John. <laughs> uh, and you know that was that was my world and definitely had a phase of only you know dating black women and being attracted to that culture and that lifestyle and that yeah way of being so it was definitely a chapter and yeah again was you know like we, we were also you know deeply steeped in landmark at the time we were doing ilp i was training to be an introduction leader program so we were doing hip-hop music while converting people into landmark education. Did you and try to talk to Jadakiss and Ashanti about landmark and all of that? <laughs> Not specifically those two, but definitely like the B2K boys and Mark Sparks, who was a big producer back in the day, produced like Salt and Pepper, Shoop, Shooby-Doop. Uh, uh, <laughs> so that puts your enrolling capabilities to test, right? to see if you can convert one of those guys. Yeah. And that's another thing I didn't speak to, but that's always been one of my greatest skill sets is the ability to find myself in settings where I don't belong, or you could say I don't belong or I don't, I'm not of the, whether it's like a lesbian bar full of like, kind of like very butch bull dyke kind of like reality or a fraternity house, like a, a Delta Kappa black and Puerto Rican fraternity house dance party. And can I find myself connected and comfortable and vibing and being enmeshed in the culture and not feeling separate? Mm. So I've always had some desire and, and, and some unique ability to create cultural barriers through relationship and, you know, finding common ground. Mm. And I've always loved it, loved that opportunity to find common ground maybe in divergent cultures or in places where there maybe doesn't feel like there's common ground. I want to flash forward through these next few experiences because we ultimately need to talk about regeneration. That's what I really want to talk about. But Napster took you guys out. Studio had to close. You lost everything and you became a host at Follow Your Heart restaurant slash grocery store for a little bit. And then you ended up calling your dad in tears. What was that about? Yeah, basically, 
I was living in Baldwin Hills in LA with two brothers, Ricardo and Charles, two of my best friends that I'd made in LA. And I was selling weed. I was taking acting classes to try to become an actor, thinking maybe I would find my thing in LA that way. And I was ultimately feeling like I didn't know what was next for me. And I always had a I always had a knack with food. I cooked all the meals for our house and I, I always, you know, had a, a knack for food as medicine and, and educating people on that holistic health. And my buddy Ricarlo kind of was like, why don't you go return and, you know, work with your dad and, you know, build this restaurant that he's starting. It's kind of who you are. It's what you do. It's your, it's kind of the essence of who you are, hospitality, food, wellness, healing, so, yeah, I basically just called my dad kind of a little bit reluctantly because as the prodigal son of wanting to go make on make it on your own and, you know, not depend on the parents for success, making the parents proud by, you know, succeeding on your own. It was kind of humbling to like go back and say, hey, I'd like to come work with you. But that's what it took. And, you know, I called him and just said, I'd love to come and work with you and, and, and grow the business and learn from you and maybe come back one day and open Cafe Gratitude in LA. And I thought maybe I could learn the business in a year. It ended up taking five years to learn the business and ultimately the, the building of a, a pretty big community of friends and people who had became deeply connected with, you know, running and working in Cafe Gratitude and customers that became regulars. And, you know, I had this dream of coming back to LA to open a restaurant down there. Not, you know, again, I'm not that practical. I'm definitely like a whimsical, airy guy of like big ideas. You know, I'm a hardworking and I'm able to rally people together to make things happen. But I don't think that linearly, I kind of have this big idea and kind of just start mentally and creating it in conversation. But, you know, all that to say, there was this vision that we could bring Cafe Gratitude, this unique business model, this unique kind of food that carries this unique culture of gratitude and plant-based food and caring for the earth and caring for each other. And we could come to LA, the belly of the beast and share something beautiful, share something innovative, new, inspiring. And that, that, could impact Los Angeles, the belly of the beast, healing from the inside out, and that Los Angeles could become transformed through our demonstration of a, of a, of a unique kind of business that has a unique ethos, and that that could be transformative. And again, another expression of how to create transformation, which has always been part of my life. And we didn't even talk about May I Be Frank, but that's obviously another expression a film about a guy's transformation who walks into Cafe Gratitude. We put him on a, a physical and spiritual and emotional sort of transformation plan and his life transforms. You can go see that film. I have a yeah. question leading up to this time. So you mentioned the call to your dad was a little bit, it was a little bit challenging, maybe a lot challenging. You were selling weed, your sister was selling weed and all of that. Did your dad have a policy where he wasn't supporting you guys? Like, were you, barely scraping by up until that point. What was that relationship like? I'm just curious what, you know, because when you made that call, obviously that is a part of it. I'm going to need, I need support. Yeah. For the most part, my dad invested and believed in our vision for the recording studio and he had supported us that way. But for the most part, from when I left home, yeah, up until that point, 
I was essentially surviving on my own. Was it explicit? Did he say, look, don't call me for anything? Or did you kind of know in the no. back of your mind, if I really needed something, I could reach out? Yeah, to no, I, I knew in the back of my mind, if I really needed something. And, you know, again, during the studio, they had really funded us to get off the ground to get that going and definitely saved our asses a couple of times, you know, when we were in, in a jam, but it wasn't that I was, I was afraid to ask him. It was more just being humbled that like I needed help and I, I, I wanted to join him in his venture versus like I had it figured out and I was well on my way. And so it was more just, you know, going back to the nest and saying, I want to join you and I want to be supported by you and I want to work with you. And of course, he was thrilled and he was happy to have me come home. And you had a pretty good work ethic at that time as well. So you guys basically grew this brand, this Cafe Gratitude brand together. You implemented a lot. I mean, it changed a lot over the years. Totally. Yeah, it certainly did. It went from kind of very hippy dippy for the first eight years. We opened seven locations in the Bay Area and then we partnered with another couple in LA and kind of branded it and made it a much more modern, clean, beautiful design, savvy, mainstream appealing, which ultimately became the Cafe Gratitude that many people know about. But yeah, in 2010, me and my brother and 14 of our friends who were working in the restaurants moved to LA and we got a couple community houses in downtown LA and we opened the restaurant and Justin Schmidt was one of those people who, and Justin Smith, rest in peace, brother. Rest in peace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that. That was an exciting time, man. Cause everyone, I was a strict vegan at the time and we had all heard about cafe gratitude. I'd never been to it in San Francisco, but we had all heard about it. I had seen the game abounding river somewhere, somehow. And like I said, I'd been to the retreat. I went to a sacred commerce retreat with your, with uh, Matthew and Tercy and Ciela and Justin and John and a few other people. So they had all been talking it up and yeah, it was exciting to, to finally see that we had more options than just real food daily and a few other of the other staples in LA at the time. And did you drink plant medicine with my mom and no, no. You know what? It's so funny. They did that at the retreat and myself and my buddy who I came with were probably the only ones who didn't do it. But I remember Justin did it and he had a very intense reaction where he, I think he, they had to like crash tackle him while he was, he was, you know, about to run off of a cliff or something. Like that. Oh, wow. so, it was the talk of the retreat, but no, we didn't do it on that, on that experience. I've actually never done plant medicine before. Just had really felt called to do it. Yeah. But you eventually ended up graduating yourself from Cafe Gratitude because you were, I guess, taken by this other idea. You were in New Zealand. Talk about the New Zealand experience. Yeah. So I was in New Zealand back in 2012. And I was there sharing about sacred commerce, our business model of Cafe Gratitude. But I found myself at a health and wellness conference and just in an audience of a discussion called Can Human Beings Sustain Themselves on Planet Earth? Basically, the five out of the six experts said no, that we're heading into the Anthropocene and the sixth mass extinction and that, you know, human impact on planet Earth has been severe and dire and is dire. 
and that the opportunity for sustaining is not an is not an option. And it was a pretty intense and usually conferences are kind of like, but there's hope. And this was not that. This was like one of those conversations where five of the six experts really left it like pretty dismal. And I, I was definitely moved to like tears in that moment and of like kind of shock and overwhelm. And then this guy, Graham Sait spoke and he basically made the connection between, he acknowledged that, that what they were saying is true, but if we can't sustain, but we can actually regenerate, that we can heal and we can turn the clocks back. And the way we can do that is through taking the excess carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into our soils. And we can do that through working with plants, trees, and grasses and our agricultural system. And that everyone who eats can participate in the revolution of regenerating our soils and healing our planet. And for me, it was the first time I'd ever seen the dots being connected between the mechanisms of nature and the earth and human participation that was a clear pathway for how life could get better, you know, three or four generations forward. It was just like this, this light went off in my heart and mind in a way that is, you know, after, you know, almost 10 years since that moment present to the gift and that these kinds of moments don't happen, you know, all the time, but it was so profound that it was like my life became aware of this thing that I couldn't become unaware of and that there was this opportunity to have a global adoption of this idea and understanding of regeneration, which had just become fully bloomed and illuminated in my mind and heart. And it was like, oh my God. And I could see and feel the possibility of this really happening in that moment, in that moment, in that day, nine years ago. And I could see somehow I'd play a role in helping to have that message be catalyzed and shared. And so I went back to LA, went back to restaurant business and found myself evangelizing table by table, friend by friend about the solution of soil and regenerative agriculture. And do you know about it? And how do we grow this? And how do we make this happen? And, and, you know, it was the kind of things where I was like, I had conversations with like Al Gore, you know, climate experts, and even they weren't really attuned or connected to that. This was a real solution. And, you know, I'd look online and find what could I, what kind of content could I share with people to have them further engage in my, my story and my narrative and my learning. There was almost no information online that I could find that was really easy to enroll people or compel people to kind of follow this message. And most of the information was really bad YouTube videos and, you know, deep and kind of long wordy academic research white papers. And so we ended up just that guy from the, from the documentary, Ray, he was out there in the field working on educating farmers at this point or no? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, he was working for the NRCS, but you know, there wasn't a lot of exposure to the general public about what he was doing. He was just working inside of a, a U.S. you know, governmental agency, you know, working with farmers here and there, but there wasn't a lot of exposure around the bigger opportunity of conservation practices of agriculture. It was Mm. still 
And, you know, at that time, it was more in the mind of conservation, kind of doing less harm versus this idea that we can actually regenerate, heal and restore. And profit. And profit. Yeah. So, yeah. That Did you was, have conversations with all your suppliers to find out who was doing this or who knew about it or anything like Because I can, I can imagine that would be an exciting. I mean, you've got uh, dozens yeah, of suppliers, right? Yeah, absolutely. That definitely became in the early years, the mission, how do we convert people who are in the foods, you know, in the supply chain to understand regenerative agriculture. And, you know, obviously my gregariousness was like, do this now. We want everybody doing regenerative. But as you dig into things and want things to change with a kind of naivete, buoyant optimism, you know, you get into the details and the, the sticky wickets of all the systemization that has things, you know, kept in place. And so, well, I could find a few different vendors that were interested or curious or would want to learn more or were doing, you know, things that were in the direction of regenerative agriculture. For the most part, it was a big paradigm shift. So it, it was like, okay, yes, we can get a few vendors here and there that are doing some land management that reflects regenerative practices, but the bigger opportunity and the bigger kind of skill set that I thought we could do is like, how do we get this message and get the tastemakers of the world and being that we're in Los Angeles and using media to create a new narrative, a new mythology that really gave credibility and understanding of regeneration to the general public. What were the resources like in the early days when you were first starting Kiss the Ground? Did you have an allocated amount of money from your gratitude operating budget that you were going to use to start this thing and pay people? Or was it your personal passion uh, project? I mean, it was, we were a working group. No one was being paid. We, we had people showing up for almost a year. No one being paid. Every Monday, people would show up to Andrew McFarlane, Finian. Lauren Tucker. Lauren. Karen, so that Karen was when you were at the firehouse in Venice. You had started the little plot. Yep. You were walking by at that time. I don't know that we, yeah, we knew yeah. each other, but not, not that well yet. So yeah, so we started in my living room. We ended up building a garden in Venice as a kind of summer project to kind of create a space where we could bring people in and have them be curious and of how we could enroll them in this possibility. You were enrolling your ass off and rolling the fire department. I was rolling rolling my ass off. I was, yeah, I was definitely a, an evangelist for soil health. So as far as resources go, you know, we started a working group and then we decided we would incorporate as a nonprofit. And then, you know, I remember getting the first $40,000 check from our partners, Chris and Lisa Bonbright. They gave us the first $40,000, which led to, you know, our first kind of budget and our first hire of an employee, which was Jenny Emblem, who, which again, goes back to she was a host at Cafe Gratitude, and then she became an employee at Kiss the Ground. I don't remember um, that, but that's interesting. Wow. I didn't know uh, that. Okay. And then Erin McMorrow, the author of Grounded, who I think you know, she became you know the next kind of ED for the org. And then I brought a guy in, Jonas Hunter, who was the ED for a while. And then Lauren Tucker was the ED for a while. And then about, yeah, two years ago, yeah, I had a feeling of, 
all right, restaurant business is awesome. I love Cafe Gratitude. It's been an amazing journey of service and hospitality and building community and food is medicine. But I watched a video of Greta Thunberg and I was just up late with my buddy John Morrow talking about what the next 10 years of our lives are going to be and, and just had the realization that it was time for me to move on from graduate from Cafe Gratitude and commit fully to the work of Kiss the Ground to see if we could really move the needle of a national and global adoption of regenerative agriculture as you know the thing that could be the biggest service and biggest contribution of my life to you know humanity and to the earth and also calling back to that moment and devotion to that ayahuasca experience and you know just being in service to mother earth i know you at that time you had relationships with giselle rosario ian Jaden and all of that was the documentary already in works when you left cafe gratitude or was that something you started right afterwards no the the documentary was seven years in the making oh wow Um, and i i moved into a house in venice that you've been to right um, and that was josh and rebecca's old house who the the directors of the film so they moved moved in and i enrolled them and hey would you want to make this film and partner with us and they said no at first and then they came back around and were interested and wanted to partner. And, you know, that was a seven-year collaboration and community effort. What are the mechanics of enrolling? For people who hear us mention this, this term, how do you enroll somebody? If, if you're listening to this and they want to get someone excited about their project, their nonprofit, or whatever, what, what, what do they have to do to enroll somebody? Yeah, so first you have to be, you have to be authentic. You have to be willing to say where you're full of it and what you don't know. So you, you, you create a basis of relationship. I think in, in some ways people, you know, it's like you start a meeting and you kind of make a you poke fun at yourself to make yourself not so significant. And vulnerable. So there's, yeah, there's an element of that. And then there's really being touch moved and inspired about an idea or a vision or a concept or something that you're wanting others to participate in. So it's really like demonstrating that you're all in with your heart and soul and then inviting people to participate from an unattached place. It's like, instead of saying, Hey, do you want to jump in the water? Let's jump in. You want to jump in? It's you jumping in the water and going, it's amazing. It's the best thing you've ever jump in. If you want to jump in, join me. Um, but it, it's not like, hey, do you want to go in together? It's like, no, you got to go first. You got to be touch moved and inspired about what that experience is and that you're okay if they're in or not, but you'd love them to join you. TMI, touched, moved, and inspired. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That's my experience. And, you know, that, that, that's a definite concept that comes out of Landmark. But that was, that was kind of my live take on experience that I've experienced over my, the last 20 years of my life, understanding that, that concept. Well, look, man, the documentary which is called Kiss the Ground. It's on Netflix right now. It's inspiring. It's moving. It's informative. 
I think the documentary itself enrolls people in the idea of regeneration and biodiversity and all of the things that come with that. And there's a book out as well. And the book is, um, is the, I haven't read the book. Is the book a version of the documentary? Books, yeah, book, book and film, both by Josh wrote the book. Josh and Rebecca directed the film. I produced the film or one of the producers of the film. So there's the film, but then there's the, the organization, which we've grown into a globally recognized organization that's really been educating and advocating for regenerative agriculture. And we've created 60 short films. We've created three online sort of masterclass courses, one on soil advocacy training. We've trained over 3,000 people in 30, 40 countries around the world to understand the potential and possibility of regeneration and are on the ground creating projects from their ability to advocate, educate, and communicate on the, the, the concepts and principles. And this is not just for farmers. This is for anyone with for a anyone. yard who wants to compost or do anything related to soil regeneration. Yeah, I mean, it's connecting people with how do we start to think about ourselves as a part of nature and how can we contribute to the well-being of our earth versus degrading our earth and understanding the principles of ecology, soil health, photosynthesis, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the nutri nutrient cycle, and how anyone can get involved in helping regenerate our planet because it, it feels like the biggest and most pressing movement because all things rely on ecosystem services. We all rely on food grown from the soil. 95% of what we eat comes from soil. We all rely on oxygen that comes from plants, trees, and the ocean photosynthesizing plants. And so how do we not just be a consumer culture that buys products that are less harmful, but how do we start supporting enterprises and businesses that really understand the premise of regeneration and entrepreneurship and innovation starts really exploring business, policy, education around the, prin the principles of regeneration. So that can become the context in which we're all starting to design and implement, you know, what is the, the future of life on planet Earth? And, you know, I think there's been an inherited view that humans fundamentally degrade and destroy the Earth based on our using of resources. And mm. there's an ancient wisdom that understood regeneration and our interconnection with life, you know, coming from indigenous place-based, you know, peoples who are much more reliant and connected to the earth. And now there's a, an emerging conversation um, that's applying to our global agricultural system and even financial models, business models. How do we go beyond sustain? You know, I love the idea of like, is your relationship, do we want to aspire that our relationships are sustainable or do we want to point our relationships to be thriving, to be regenerative, to be restorative, to be healing, to be inspiring, to be you know, cultivating, giving us renewal versus just, you know, a slow depletion without being fully degenerated. That's, you know, the definition of sustainability is the ability to use resources without fully depleting or destroying them. But mm. if we think about, you know, where the baseline is right now, we need lots of renewal, we need lots of healing, we need lots of regeneration. And so to have regeneration be the North Star for our collective to be working towards 
is definitely something inspiring to me and you know part of the mission of kiss the ground awakening people to the possibilities of regeneration so we, we work with farmers uh, providing education and grants we work with advocates training advocates how to educate and advocate and be activists in the regenerative movement and we also train gardeners how to take this to your backyard or to your windowsill if you wanted to be growing in a way of really understanding the regenerative potential on a small scale, you know, sort of backyard style. We just did an amazing course called Regenerative Gardening for Beginners and Advanced with a, an amazing teacher named Tashonda Giles Jones, who's an LA based gardening educator. And that just came out this summer, those two courses. And then we've been really stepping into policy with Finian, as you know, you know, he's really taken a lead in state, local, and even federal policy around using the tools and educational materials and the expertise and community that we built around, you know, regenerative agriculture and curating those thought leaders, you know, thought leadership and those experts with decision makers to really change policy to support soil health and regenerative agriculture. You did this part-time for a long time. You took the leap of faith, left your good, great job. Now you're doing this full-time. Did you notice a significant bump in all of the things that you're now talking about that you guys have accomplished since you took that leap of faith? Or do you feel like that was always kind of in the works? Like what, what was the energetic difference in making that level of commitment? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time, right? With the pandemic happening, we had a movie come out. So it's definitely been a wild, rocky, ups and downs, you know, moments of total elation and like dream coming true. Millions of people seeing the film, 5 million people have seen the film, a billion media impressions about the film, 50 festivals at one, to then feeling totally disenchanted, totally denuded of energy and life force and feeling defeated based on challenges within our team and critique of the film and the organization. So it's been a rocky road. And honestly, right now, I'm, I'm just trying to really focus on this new initiative and really kind of getting back to buoyancy and fully grounded, passionate, committed action and energetic forward movement within the organization. But the last year and a half has been many different experiences. It hasn't been one experience as far as like, I'm doing the right thing. This is my calling. I'm, I'm here. I'm full time. This is the best thing. No, I, it hasn't been all cheery at all like that. Um, definitely well, you know, what's interesting is the restaurant industry has probably had it worse when the pandemic started. So it's like on one hand, yeah, it's been a bit rocky, but on the other hand, it's like you got out at the perfect time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and I moved to, you know, I moved to my sister's farm in Fillmore a year ago, June, and that was a, a, an amazing time to shift focus and get closer connected to land and fully commit to this mission that was in my heart. Beautiful. I'm going to loop it back around to childhood, which is what I like to do with these episodes. You just mentioned getting back connected to the land. You started off connected to the land. Your work has very much been about helping people feel connected in one form or another. And that's one of the beautiful things about the sequence of these conversations that I've been having is you can see that it's almost like your life 
was whether you realized it or not was heading in this direction <laughs> to you being able to and having the resources to help other people feel what you were most inspired by as a child, you know, that sense of connection, that sense of peacefulness, that sense of oneness. And I can't think of a better way to embody that than through the principle of regeneration, not even just with farms and agriculture, but with every aspect of life, leaving things more replenished than depleted. So I just want to acknowledge you for showing up again and again, taking those leaps of faith, saying yes to all these opportunities and rebuilding as many times as you've had and and just continuing to be as authentic as you can be and enrolling all of us into your vision of how the world can be a better place. And I'm happy and grateful and humble to call you a friend. So thank you very much for coming on, brother. Thank you, Light. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for all the thoughtful questions. Thanks for your kind and gentle heart. Thanks for all of our mornings together running up that hill. <laughs> I've got some stories about that in my most recent book, Knowing Where to Look. I don't mention anyone's names or, but you, you are, for those of you who are familiar with the book and running up the hill, you are the person that I would run up that hill with. So those are always going to be fond memories of our, and hopefully we'll get to do it again at some point in the future. I don't know if there are any hills in Fillmore near, near your place, but when I come out there, we'll have to do some hill sprints. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Rylan Englehart of Kiss the Ground. To learn more about his work with soil regeneration, I highly recommend checking out the Netflix documentary Kiss the Ground. You can also follow Rylan and Kiss the Ground on social media. I'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find on my website at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're on my website, you may also see a link to my latest book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of those inspirational stories are drawn from my five years of sending out experiences, anecdotes, observations to my subscribers through my Daily Dose of Inspiration email, which you can also sign up for while you're on my website. And my final ask to you for listening to this podcast is to leave a rating or review which you can quickly do by just glancing at your screen, clicking on the Apple Podcast app, click on the name of the podcast, which is at the end of the tunnel, scroll down past the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars. Tap the one all the way on the right, and you've left me a rating. If you want to go the extra mile and type a couple of lines about what you like about this podcast, then you can leave a review, and I would truly, truly appreciate you hooking me up in that way. Thank you again for listening. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep believing. Keep believing that what you're doing, what you're going through is going to play a role in your mission. And have a great rest of your day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com. 
and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.